Too late. Lord Alfred realized their danger. He bitterly regretted his own folly in supporting Derek, for he could see clearly now that Derek Crownguard was going insane. The madness grew on him daily. Derek's lust for power ate away at him and deprived him of his reason, but Lord Alfred was powerless to act. So locked into their rigid structure were the knights that it would take, according to the measure, months of knights' councils to strip Derek of his rank. News of Sturm's vindication struck this dry and crackling forest like a bolt of lightning. As Gunthar had foreseen, this completely shattered Derek's hopes. What Gunthar had not foreseen was that this would sever Derek's tenuous hold on sanity. On the morning following the storm, the eyes of the guards turned for a moment from their vigilance over the dragon armies to look down into the courtyard of the Tower of the High Clarist. The sun filled the grey sky with a chill, pale light that was reflected in the coldly gleaming armor of the Knights of Salamnia as they assembled in the solemn ceremony awarding knighthood. Above them, the flags with the knight's crest seemed frozen upon the battlements, hanging lifeless in the still, cold air. Then a trumpet's pure notes split the air, stirring the blood. At that clarion call, the knights lifted their heads proudly and marched into the courtyard. Lord Alfred stood in the center of a circle of knights, dressed in his battle armor, his red cape fluttering from his shoulders. He held an antique sword in an old, battered scabbard. The kingfisher, the rose, and the crown, ancient symbols of the knighthood, were entwined upon the scabbard. The Lord cast a swift, hopeful gaze around the assembly, but then lowered his eyes, shaking his head. Lord Alfred's worst fears were realized. He had hoped, bleakly, that this ceremony might reunite the knights. But it was having the opposite effect. There were great gaps in the sacred circle, gaps that the knights in attendance stared at uncomfortably. Derek and his entire command were absent. The trumpet call sounded twice more, then silence fell upon the assembled knights. Sturm Brightblade, dressed in long white robes, stepped out of the chapel of the High Clarist, where he had spent the night in solemn prayer and meditation as prescribed by the measure. Accompanying him was an unusual guard of honor. Beside Sturm walked an elven woman, her beauty shining in the bleakness of the day like the sun dawning in the spring. Behind her walked an old dwarf, the sunlight bright on his white hair and beard. Next to the dwarf came a kender dressed in bright blue leggings. The circle of knights opened to admit Sturm and his escorts. They came to a halt before Lord Alfred, Lorana, holding his helm in her hands, stood on his right. Flint, carrying his shield, stood on his left. And after a poke in the ribs from the dwarf, Tasselhoff hurried forward with the knight's spurs. Sturm bowed his head, his long hair already streaked with gray, though he was only in his early thirties, fell about his shoulders. He stood a moment in silent prayer, then, at a sign from Lord Alfred, fell reverently to his knees. Sturm Brightblade, Lord Alfred declared solemnly, opening a sheet of paper. The Knights' Council, on hearing testimony given by Laurel and Thalassa, 
of the royal family of Qualanesti, and further testimony by Flint Fireforge, Hill Dwarf of Solace Township, has granted you vindication from the charges brought against you. In recognition of your deeds of bravery and courage as related by these witnesses, you are hereby declared a knight of Solamnia. Lord Alfred's voice softened as he looked down upon the knight. Tears streamed unchecked down Sturm's gaunt cheeks. You have spent the night in prayer, Sturm Brightblade, Alfred said quietly. Do you consider yourself worthy of this great honor? No, my lord, Sturm answered according to ancient ritual. But I most humbly accept it, and the vow that I shall devote my life to making myself worthy. The knight lifted his eyes to the sky. With Paladin's help, he said softly, I shall do so. Lord Alfred had been through many such ceremonies, but he could not recall such fervent dedication in a man's face. I wish Tannis were here, Flint muttered gruffly to Lorana, who only nodded briefly. She stood tall and straight, wearing armor specially made for her in Palanthas at Lord Gunthar's command. Her honey-colored hair streamed from beneath a silver helm. Intricate gold designs glinted on her breastplate. Her soft black leather skirt slit up the side to allow freedom of movement, brushed the tips of her boots. Her face was pale and grim, for the situation in Palanthas and in the tower itself was dark and seemingly without hope. She could have returned to San Crist. She had been ordered to, in fact. Lord Gunthar had received a secret communique from Lord Alfred relating the desperate straits the knights were in, and he had sent Lorano orders to cut short her stay. But she had chosen to remain, at least for a while. The people of Palantas had received her politely. She was, after all, of royal blood, and they were charmed with her beauty. They were also quite interested in the dragonlance, and asked for one to exhibit in their museum. But when Lorana mentioned the dragon armies, they only shrugged and smiled. Then Lorana found out from a messenger what was happening in the High Clarist's Tower. The knights were under siege. A dragon army numbering in the thousands waited upon the field. The knights needed the dragon lances, Lorana decided, and there was no one but her to take the lances to the knights and teach them their use. She ignored Lord Gunthar's command to return to San Crist. The journey from Palanthas to the tower was nightmarish. Lorana started out accompanying two wagons filled with meager supplies and the precious dragon lances. The first wagon bogged down in snow only a few miles outside of the city. Its contents were redistributed between the few knights riding escort. Lorana and her party, and the second wagon. It too foundered. Time and again they dug it out of the snowdrifts until, finally, it was mired fast. Loading the food and the lances onto their horses, the knights and Lorana, Flint and Tass walked the rest of the way. Theirs was the last group to make it through. After the storm of last night, Lorana knew, as did everyone in the tower, no more supplies would be coming. The road to Palanthas was now impassable. Even by strictest rationing, 
the knights and their footmen, had food enough for only a few days. The dragon armies seemed prepared to wait for the rest of the winter. The dragon lances were taken from the weary horses who had borne them and, by Derek's orders, were stacked in the courtyard. A few of the knights looked at them curiously, then ignored them. The lances seemed clumsy, unwieldy weapons. When Lorana timidly offered to instruct the knights in the use of the lances, Derek snorted in derision. Lord Alfred stared out the window at the campfires burning on the horizon. Lorana turned to Sturm to see her fears confirmed. Lorana, he said gently, taking her cold hand in his. I don't think the High Lord will even bother to send dragons. If we cannot reopen the supply lines, the tower will fall because there will be only the dead left to defend it. So, the dragon lances lay in the courtyard, unused, forgotten, their bright silver buried beneath the snow. Chapter 11 A Kender's Curiosity the Knights Ride Forth Sturm and Flint walked along the battlements the night of Sturm's knighting, reminiscing. A well of pure silver, shining like a jewel, within the heart of the Dragon Mountain, Flint said, all in his voice. And it was from that silver Theros forged the dragon lances. I should have liked... Above all things to have seen Huma's tomb, Sturm said quietly, staring out at the campfires on the horizon. He stopped, resting his hand on the ancient stone wall. Torchlight from a nearby window shone on his thin face. You will, said the dwarf. When this is finished, we'll go back. Tass drew a map, not that it's likely to be any good. As he grumbled on about Tass, Flint studied his other old friend with concern. The knight's face was grave and melancholy. Not unusual for Sturm, but there was something new, a calmness about him that came not from serenity but from despair. We'll go there together, he continued, trying to forget about his hunger. You and Tannis and I, and the kinder too, I suppose, plus Caraman and Raceland. I never thought I'd miss that skinny mage, but a magic user might be handy now. It's just as well Caraman's not here. Can you imagine the bellyaching we'd hear about missing a couple of meals? Sturm smiled absently, his thoughts far away. When he spoke, it was obvious he hadn't heard a word the dwarf said. Flint, he began, his voice soft and subdued. We need only one day of warm weather to open the road. When that day comes, take Lorana and Tass and leave. Promise me. We should all leave if you ask me, the dwarf snapped. Pull the knights back to Palanthus. We could hold that town against even dragons, I'll wager. Its buildings are good, solid stone, not like this place. The dwarf glanced around the human-built tower with scorn. Palanthus could be defended. Sturm shook his head. The people won't allow it. They care only for their beautiful city. As long as they think it can be saved, they won't fight. 
No. We must make our stand here. We don't have a chance, Flint argued. Yes, we do, Sturm replied. If we can just hold out until the supply lines can be firmly established. We've got enough manpower. That's why the dragon armies haven't attacked. There's another way, came a voice. Sturm and Flint turned. The torchlight fell on a gaunt face and Sturm's expression hardened. What way is that, Lord Derek? Sturm asked with deliberate politeness. You and Gunther believe you have defeated me, Derek said, ignoring the question. His voice was soft and shaking with hatred as he stared at Sturm. That you haven't. By one heroic act I will have the knights in my palm. Derek held out his mailed hand, the armor, flashing in the firelight. And you and Gunther will be finished. Slowly, he clenched his fist. I was under the impression our war was out there with the dragon armies, Sturm said. Don't give me that self-righteous twaddle, Derek snarled. Enjoy your knighthood, Brightblade. You paid enough for it. What did you promise the elf woman in return for her lies? Marriage? Make a respectable woman of her? I cannot fight you, according to the measure. But I do not have to listen to you insult a woman who is as good as she is courageous, Sturm said, turning upon his heel to leave. Don't you ever walk away from me, Derek cried. Leaping forward, he grabbed Sturm's shoulder. Sturm whirled in anger, his hand on his sword. Derek reached for his weapon as well. And it seemed, for a moment, that the measure might be forgotten. But Flint laid a restraining hand on his friend. Sturm drew a deep breath and lifted his hand away from the hilt. Say what you have to say, Derek. Sturm's voice quivered. You're finished, Brightblade. Tomorrow I'm leading the knights into the field, no more skulking in this miserable rock prison. By tomorrow night, my name will be Legend. Flint looked up at Sturm in alarm. The knight's face had drained of blood. Derek, Sturm said softly, you're mad. There are thousands of them. They'll cut you to ribbons. Yes, that's what you'd like to see, isn't it? Derek sneered. Be ready at dawn, Brightblade. That night, Tasselhoff, cold, hungry, and bored, decided that the best way to take his mind off his stomach was to explore his surroundings. There are plenty of places to hide things here, thought Tass. This is one of the strangest buildings I've ever seen. The tower of the High Clarist sat solidly against the west side of the Westgate Pass, the only canyon pass that crossed the Habakkuk Range of mountains separating eastern Salamnia from Palanthas. As the Dragon High Lord knew, anyone trying to reach Palanthas other than by this route would have to travel hundreds of miles around the mountains or through the desert, or by sea. The ships entering the gates of Paladin were easy targets for the gnomes' fire-throwing catapults. The High Clarist's Tower had been built during the Age of Might. 
Flint knew a lot about the architecture of this period, the dwarves having been instrumental in designing and building most of it. But they had not built or designed this tower, in fact. Flint wondered who had, figuring the person must have been either drunk or insane. An outer curtain wall of stone formed an octagon as the tower's base. Each point of the octagonal wall was surmounted by a turret. Battlements ran along the top of the curtain wall between turrets. An inner octagonal wall formed the base of a series of towers and buttresses that swept gracefully upward to the central tower itself. This was fairly standard design, but what puzzled the dwarf was the lack of internal defense points. Three great steel doors breached the outer wall instead of one door, as would seem most reasonable, since three doors took an incredible number of men to defend. Each door opened into a narrow courtyard at the far end of which stood a portcullis, leading directly into a huge hallway. Each of these three hallways met in the heart of the tower itself. Might as well invite the enemy inside for tea, the dwarf had grumbled. Stupidest way to build a fortress I ever saw. No one entered the tower. To the knights it was inviolate. The only one who could enter the tower was the high clarist himself, and since there was no high clarist, the knights would defend the tower walls with their lives, but not one of them could set foot in its sacred halls. Originally, the tower had merely guarded the pass, not blocked it. But the Palantheans had later built an addition to the main structure that sealed off the pass. It was in this addition that the knights and the footmen were living. No one even thought of entering the tower itself. No one, except Tasselhoff. Driven by his insatiable curiosity and his gnawing hunger, the kender made his way along the top of the outer wall. The knights on guard duty eyed him warily, gripping their swords in one hand, their purses in the other. But they relaxed as soon as he passed, and Tass was able to slip down the steps and into the central courtyard. Only shadows walked down here. No torches burned. No guard was posted. Broad steps led up to the steel portcullis. Tass padded up the stairs toward the great, yawning archway and peered eagerly through the bars. Nothing. He sighed. The darkness beyond was so intense he might have been staring into the abyss itself. Frustrated, he pushed up on the portcullis, more out of habit than hope, for only Caraman or ten knights would have the strength necessary to raise it. To the Kender's astonishment, the portcullis began to rise, making the most god-awful screeching. Grabbing for it, Tass dragged it slowly to a halt. The Kender looked fearfully up at the battlements, expecting to see the entire garrison thundering down to capture him. But apparently, the knights were listening only to the growlings of their empty stomachs. Tass turned back to the portcullis. There was a small space open between the sharp iron spikes and the stonework, a space just big enough for a Kender. Tass didn't waste any time or stop to consider the consequences— Flattening himself, he wriggled beneath the spikes. He found himself in a large, wide hall, nearly fifty feet across. He could see just a short distance. There were old torches on the wall, however. 
After a few jumps, Tass reached one and lit it from Flint's tinderbox he found in his pouch. Now, Tass could see the gigantic hole clearly. It ran straight ahead, right into the heart of the tower. Strange columns ranged along either side like jagged teeth. Peering behind one, he saw nothing but an alcove. The hall itself was empty. Disappointed, Tass continued walking down it, hoping to find something interesting. He came to a second portcullis, already raised, much to his chagrin. Anything easy is more trouble than it's worth, was an old kender saying. Tass walked beneath that portcullis, into a second hallway, narrower than the first. Only about ten feet wide, but with the same strange, tooth-like columns on either side. Why build a tower so easy to enter? Tass wondered. The outer wall was formidable, but once past that, five drunken dwarves could take this place. Tass peered up. And why so huge? The main hall was thirty feet high. Perhaps the knights back in those days had been giants, the kender speculated with interest as he crept down the hall, peering into open doors and poking into corners. At the end of the second hallway he found a third portcullis. This one was different from the other two and as strange as the rest of the tower. This portcullis had two halves, which slid together to join in the center. Oddest of all, there was a large hole cut right through the middle of the doors. Crawling through this hole, Tass found himself in a smaller room. Across from him stood two huge steel doors. Pushing on them casually, he was startled to find them locked. None of the portcullises had been locked. There was nothing to protect. Well, at least here was something to keep him occupied and make him forget his empty stomach. Climbing onto a stone bench, Tass stuck his torch into a wall sconce, then began to fumble through his pouches. He finally discovered the set of lock-picking devices that are a kender's birthright. Why insult the door's purpose by locking it? is a favorite kender expression. Quickly, Tass selected the proper tool and set to work. The lock was simple, there was a slight click, and Tass pocketed his tools with satisfaction as the door swung inward. The kender stood a moment, listening carefully. He could hear nothing. Peering inside, he could see nothing. Climbing up on the bench again, he retrieved his torch and crept carefully through the steel doors. Holding his torch aloft, he found himself in a great, wide, circular room. Tass sighed. The great room was empty except for a dust-covered object that resembled an ancient fountain standing squarely in the center. This was the end of the corridor, too. For though there were two more sets of double doors leading out of the room, it was obvious to the kender that they only led back up the other two giant hallways. This was the heart of the tower. This was the sacred place. This was what the fuss was all about. Nothing. Tass walked around a bit, shining his torchlight here and there. Finally, 
the disgruntled Kender went to examine the fountain in the center of the room before leaving. As Task drew closer, he saw it wasn't a fountain at all, but the dust was so thick, he couldn't figure it out. It was about as tall as the Kender, standing four feet off the ground. The round top was supported on a slender three-legged stand. Tass inspected the object closely. Then he took a deep breath and blew as hard as he could. Dust flew up his nose and he sneezed violently, nearly dropping the torch. For a moment he couldn't see a thing. Then the dust settled, and he could see the object. His heart leaped into his throat. Oh, no! Tass groaned. Diving into another pouch, he pulled out a handkerchief and rubbed the object. The dust came off easily, and he knew now what it was. Drat! he said in despair. I was right. Now what do I do? The sun rose red the next morning glimmering through a haze of smoke hovering above the dragon armies. In the courtyard of the Tower of the High Clarist, the shadows of night had not yet lifted before activity began. One hundred knights mounted their horses, adjusted the girths, called for shields or buckled on armor, while a thousand footmen milled around, searching for their proper places in line. Sturm, Lorana, and Lord Alfred stood in a dark doorway, watching in silence as Lord Derrick, laughing and calling out jokes to his men, rode into the courtyard. The knight was resplendent in his armor, the rose glistening on his breastplate in the first rays of the sun. His men were in good spirits, the thought of battle making them forget their hunger. You've got to stop this, my lord, Sturm said quietly. I can't. Lord Alfred said, pulling on his gloves. His face was haggard in the morning light. He had not slept since Sturm awakened him in the waning hours of the night. The measure gives him the right to make this decision. In vain had Alfred argued with Derek, trying to convince him to wait just a few more days. Already the wind was starting to shift, bringing warm breezes from the north. But Derek had been adamant. He would ride out and challenge the dragon armies on the field. As for being outnumbered, he laughed in scorn. Since when do goblins fight like knights of Salamnia? The knights had been outnumbered fifty to one in the goblin and ogre wars of the Vingard Keep one hundred years ago, and they'd routed the creatures with ease. But you'll be fighting draconians, Sturm warned. They are not like goblins, they are intelligent and skilled. They have magic users among their ranks, and their weapons are the finest in Kryn. Even in death they have the power to kill. I believe we can deal with them, Brightblade. Derek interrupted harshly. And now I suggest you wake your men and tell them to make ready. I'm not going, Sturm said steadily. And I'm not ordering my men to go either. Derek paled with fury. For a moment he could not speak. He was so angry. Even Lord Alfred appeared shocked. Sturm, Alfred began slowly. Do you know what you are doing? 
Yes, my lord, Sturm answered. We are the only things standing between the dragon armies and Palantas. We dare not leave this garrison unmanned. I'm keeping my command here. Disobeying a direct order, Derek said, breathing heavily. You are a witness, Lord Alfred. I'll have his head this time. He stalked out. Lord Alfred, his face grim, followed, leaving Sturm alone. In the end, Sturm had given his men a choice. They could stay with him at no risk to themselves, since they were simply obeying the orders of their commanding officer, or they could accompany Derek. It was, he mentioned, the same choice Venus Solanus had given his men long ago when the knights rebelled against the corrupt emperor of Ergoth. The men did not need to be reminded of this legend. They saw it as a sign, as with Solanus. Most of them chose to stay with the commander they had come to respect and admire. Now they stood, watching, their faces grim, as their friends prepared to ride out. It was the first open break in the long history of the knighthood, and the moment was grievous. Reconsider, Sturm, Lord Alfred said as the knight helped him mount his horse. Lord Derrick is right. The dragon armies have not been trained, not like the knights. There's every possibility we'll rout them with barely a blow being struck. I pray that is true, my lord, Sturm said steadily. Alfred regarded him sadly. If it is true, Brightblade, Derek will see you tried and executed for this. There'll be nothing Gunther can do to stop him. I would willingly die that death, my lord, if it would stop what I fear will happen. Sturm replied. Damn it, man! Lord Alfred exploded. If we are defeated, what will you gain by staying here? You couldn't hold off an army of gully dwarves with your small contingent of men. Suppose the roads do open up. You won't be able to hold the tower long enough for Palanthus to send reinforcements. At the least we can buy Palanthus time to evacuate her citizens if Lord Derek Crownguard edged his horse between those of his men. Glaring down at Sturm, his eyes glittering from behind the slits in his helm, Lord Derek raised his hand for silence. According to the measure, Sturm, bright blade. Derek began formally. I hereby charge you with conspiracy and to the abyss with the measure. Sturm snarled, his patience snapping. Where has the measure gotten us? Divided, jealous, crazed. Even our own people prefer to treat with the armies of our enemies. The measure has failed. A deathly hush settled over the knights in the courtyard, broken only by the restless pawing of a horse with a jingle of armor as here and there a man shifted in his saddle. Pray for my death, Sturm Brightblade, Derek said softly. Or oh, by the gods I'll slit your throat at your execution myself. Without another word he wheeled his horse around and cantered to the head of the column. Open the gates, he called. The morning sun climbed above the smoke, rising into the blue sky. The winds blew from the north, fluttering the flag flying bravely from the top of the tower. Armor flashed. There was a clatter of swords against shields, and the sound of a trumpet call as men rushed to open the thick wooden gates.
Derek raised his sword high in the air. Lifting his voice in the knight's salute to the enemy, he galloped forward. The knights behind him picked up his ringing challenge and rode forth out into the fields where, long ago, Huma had ridden to glorious victory. The footmen marched, their footsteps beating a tattoo upon the stone pavement. For a moment, Lord Alfred seemed about to speak to Sturm and the young knights who stood watching. But he only shook his head and rode away. The gates swung shut behind him. The heavy iron bar was dropped down to lock them securely. The men in Sturm's command ran to the battlements to watch. Sturm stood silently in the center of the courtyard, his gaunt face expressionless. The young and handsome commander of the dragon armies in the dark lady's absence was just waking to breakfast and the start of another boring day when a scout galloped into camp. Commander Bacaris glared at the scout in disgust. The man was riding through camp wildly, his horse scattering cooking pots and goblins. Draconian guards leaped to their feet, shaking their fists and cursing, but the scout ignored them. The High Lord! he called, sliding off his horse in front of the tent. I must see the High Lord! The High Lord's gone, said the commander's aide. I'm in charge, snapped Bacaris. What's your business? The ranger looked around quickly, not wanting to make a mistake, but there was no sign of the dread dark lady or the big blue dragon she rode. The knights have taken the field. What? The commander's jaw sagged. Are you certain? Yes. The scout was practically incoherent. Saw them. Hundreds on horseback. Javelins. Swords. A thousand foot. She was right. Bacaris swore softly to himself in admiration. The fools have made their mistake. Calling for his servants, he hurried back to his tent. Sound the alarm, he ordered rattling off instructions. Have the captains here in five minutes for final orders. His hands shook in eagerness as he strapped on his armor. And send the wyvern to Flotsam with word for the High Lord. Goblin servants ran off in all directions, and soon blaring horn calls were echoing throughout the camp. The commander cast one last quick glance at the map on his table, then left to meet with his officers. Too bad, he reflected coolly as he walked away. The fight will probably be over by the time she gets the news. A pity. She would have wanted to be present at the fall of a high clarist's tower. Still, he reflected, perhaps tomorrow night we'll sleep in Palanthus. She and I. Chapter 12 Death on the Plains, Tasselhoff's Discovery The sun climbed high in the sky. The knights stood upon the battlements of the tower, staring out across the plains until their eyes ached. All they could see was a great tide of black, crawling figures swarming over the fields, ready to engulf the slender spear of gleaming silver that advanced steadily to meet it. The armies met. The knights strained to see, but a misty gray veil crept across the land. 
The air became tainted with a foul smell like hot iron. The mist grew thicker, almost totally obscuring the sun. Now they could see nothing. The tower seemed afloat on a sea of fog. The heavy mist even deadened the sound, for at first they heard the clash of weapons and the cries of the dying, but even that faded, and all was silent. The day wore on. Lorana, pacing restlessly in her darkening chamber, lit candles that sputtered and flickered in the foul air. The kender sat with her. Looking down from her tower window, Lorana could see Sturm and Flint standing on the battlements below her, reflected in ghostly torchlight. A servant brought her a bit of maggoty bread and dried meat that was her ration for the day. It must be only mid-afternoon, she realized. Then movement on the battlements caught her attention. She saw a man dressed in mud-splattered leather approach Sturm. A messenger, she thought. Hurriedly, she began to strap on her armor. Coming? She asked Tass, thinking suddenly that the kender had been awfully quiet. A messenger's arrived from Palanthas. I guess, Tass said without interest. Lorana frowned, hoping he wasn't growing weak from lack of food, but Tass shook his head at her concern. I'm all right, he mumbled. Just this stupid gray air. Lorana forgot about him as she hurried down the stairs. News? she asked Sturm, who peered over the walls in a vain effort to see out into the field of battle. I saw the messenger. Oh, yes. He smiled wearily. Good news, I suppose. The road to Balandas is open. The snow melted enough to get through. I have a rider standing by to take a message to Palanthas in case we are diff— He stopped abruptly, then drew a deep breath. I want you to be ready to go back to Palanthas with him. Lorana had been expecting this, and her answer was prepared. But now that the time had come for her speech, she could not give it. The bitter air dried her mouth. Her tongue seemed swollen. No, that wasn't it. She chided herself. She was frightened, admitted. She wanted to go back to Palanthas. She wanted to get out of this grim place where death lurked in the shadows. Clenching her fist, she beat her gloved hand nervously on the stone, gathering her courage. I'm staying here, Sturm, she said. After pausing to get her voice under control, she continued, I know what you're going to say, so listen to me first. You're going to need all the skilled fighters you can get. You know my worth. Sturm nodded. What she said was true. There were few in his command more accurate with a bow. She was a trained swordsman as well. She was battle-tested, something he couldn't say about many of the young knights under his command. So he nodded in agreement. He meant to send her away anyhow. I am the only one trained to use the dragon lance. Flint's been trained. Sturm interrupted quietly. Lorana fixed the dwarf with a penetrating stare. Caught between two people he loved and admired, Flint flushed and cleared his throat. That's true, he said huskily. But, uh, I must admit, uh, 
Sturm, that I am a bit short. We've seen no sign of dragons, anyhow, Sturm said as Lorana flashed him a triumphant glance. The reports say they're south of us, fighting for control of Thelgard. But you believe the dragons are on their way, don't you? Lorana returned. Sturm appeared uncomfortable. Perhaps, he muttered. You can't lie, Sturm. So don't start now. I'm staying. It's what Tannis would do. Damn it, Lorana, Sturm said, his face flushed. Live your own life. You can't be Tannis. I can't be Tannis. He isn't here. We've got to face that. The knight turned away suddenly. He isn't here, he repeated harshly. Flint sighed, glancing sorrowfully at Lorana. No one noticed Tasselhoff, who sat huddled miserably in a corner. Lorana put her arm around Sturm. I know I'm not the friend Tannis is to you, Sturm. I can never take his place. But I'll do my best to help you. That's what I meant. You don't have to treat me any differently from your knights. I know, Lorana, Sturm said. Putting his arm around her, he held her close. I'm sorry I snapped at you, Sturm sighed. And you know why I must send you away. Tannis would never forgive me if anything happened to you. Yes, he would. Lorana answered softly. He would understand. He told me once that there comes a time when you've got to risk your life for something that means more than life itself— don't you see, Sturm? If I fled to safety, leaving my friends behind, he would say he understood. But deep inside he wouldn't, because it is so far from what he would do himself. Besides, she smiled, even if there were no Tannis in this world, I still could not leave my friends. Sturm looked into her eyes and saw that no words of his would make any difference. Silently he held her close, his other arm went around Flint's shoulder and drew the dwarf near. Tasselhoff, bursting into tears, stood up and flung himself on them, sobbing wildly. They stared at him in astonishment. Tass, what is it? Lorana asked, alarmed. It's all my fault. I broke one. Am I doomed to go around the world breaking these things? Tass wailed incoherently. Calm down, Sturm said, his voice stern. He gave the kender a shake. What are you talking about? I found another one, Tass blubbered. Down below, in a big empty chamber. Another what, you doorknob? Flint said in exasperation. Another dragon orb, Tass wailed. Night settled over the tower like a thicker, heavier fog. The knights lighted torches, but the flame only peopled the darkness with ghosts. The knights kept silent watch from the battlements, straining to hear or see something, anything. Then, when it was nearly midnight, they were startled to hear not the victorious shouts of their comrades or the flat, blaring horns of the enemy, but the jingle of harness the soft whinny of horses approaching the fortress. Rushing to the edge of the battlements, the knights shone torches down into the fog. 
they heard the hoofbeats slowly come to a halt. Sturm stood above the gates. Who rides to the tower of the high clarist? he called. A single torch flared below. Lorana, staring down into the misty darkness, felt her knees grow weak and grabbed the stone wall to support herself. The knights cried out in horror. The rider who held the flaming torch was dressed in the shining armor of an officer of the dragon army. He was blonde, his features handsome, cold, and cruel. He led a second horse, across which were thrown two bodies, one of them headless, both bloody, mutilated. I have brought back your officers, the man said, his voice harsh and blaring. One is quite dead, as you can see. The other, I believe, still lives, or he did when I started on my journey. I hope he is still living so that he can recount for you what took place upon the field of battle today. If you could even call it a battle. Bathed in the glare of his own torch, the officer dismounted. He began to untie the bodies, using one hand to strip away the ropes, binding them to the saddle. Then he glanced up. Yes, you could kill me now. I am a fine target, even in this fog. But you won't. You're knights of Solamnia. His sarcasm was sharp. And your honor is your life. You wouldn't shoot an unarmed man returning the bodies of your leaders. He gave the ropes a yank. The headless body slid to the ground. The officer dragged the other body off the saddle. He tossed the torch down into the snow next to the bodies. It sizzled, then went out. And the darkness swallowed him. You have a surfeit of honor out there on the field, he called. The knights could hear the leather creak, his armor clang as he remounted his horse. I'll give you until morning to surrender. When the sun rises, lower your flag. The dragon high lord will deal with you mercifully. Suddenly there was a twang of a bow, the thunk of an arrow striking into flesh, and the sound of a startled swearing from below them. The knights turned around to stare in astonishment at a lone figure standing on the wall, a bow in its hand. I'm not a knight, Lorana called out, lowering her bow. I'm Laurel Andalasa, daughter of the Qualanesti. We elves have our own code of honor, and as I'm sure you know, I can see you quite well in this darkness. I could have killed you. As it is, I believe you will have some difficulty using that arm for a long time. In fact, you may never hold a sword again. Take that as our answer to your high lord, Sturm said harshly. We will lie cold in death before we lower our flag. Indeed you will, the officer said through teeth, clenched in pain. The sound of galloping hooves was lost in the darkness. Bring in the bodies, Sturm ordered. Cautiously, the knights opened the gates. Several rushed out to cover the others who gently lifted the bodies and bore them inside. Then the guard retreated back into the fortress and bolted the gates behind them. 
Sturm knelt in the snow beside the body of the headless knight, lifting the man's hand. He removed a ring from the stiff, cold fingers. The knight's armor was battered and black with blood. Dropping the lifeless hand back into the snow, Sturm bowed his head. Lord Alfred, he said tonelessly. Sir, said one of the young knights, the other is Lord Derrick. The foul dragon officer was right. He is still alive. Sturm rose and walked over to where Derrick lay on the cold stone. The Lord's face was white, his eyes wide and glittering feverishly. Blood caked his lips. His skin was clammy. One of the young knights, supporting him, held a cup of water to his lips, but Derrick could not drink. Sick with horror, Sturm saw Derrick's hand was pressed over his stomach, where his life's blood was welling out, but not fast enough to end the agonizing pain. Giving a ghastly smile, Derrick clutched Sturm's arm with a bloody hand. Victory, he croaked. They ran before us and we pursued. It was glorious, glorious, and I... I will be Grand Master. He choked, and blood spewed from his mouth as he fell back into the arms of a young knight who looked up at Sturm, his youthful face, hopeful. Do you suppose he's right, sir? Maybe that was a ruse. His voice died at the sight of Sturm's grim face, and he looked back at Derek with pity. He's mad, isn't he, sir? He's dying, bravely, like a true knight, Sturm said. Victory, Derek whispered. Then his eyes fixed in his head, and he gazed sightlessly into the fog. No, you mustn't break it, said Lorana. But Fizban said... I know what he said, Lorana replied impatiently. It isn't evil. It isn't good. It's not anything. It's everything. That, she muttered, is so like Fizban. She and Tass stood in front of the dragon orb. The orb rested on its stand in the center of the round room, still covered with dust, except for the spot Tass had rubbed clean. The room was dark and eerily silent, so quiet, in fact, that Tass and Lorana felt compelled to whisper. Lorana stared at the orb, her brow creased in thought. Tass stared at Lorana unhappily, afraid he knew what she was thinking. These orbs have to work, Tass, Lorana said finally. They were created by powerful magic users, people like Raceland who do not tolerate failure. If only we knew how. I know how, Tass said in a broken whisper. What? Lorana asked. You know? Why didn't you? I didn't know I knew, so to speak, Tass stammered. It just came to me. Nosh, the gnome, told me that he discovered writing inside the orb, letters that swirled around in the mist. He couldn't read them, he said, because they were written in some sort of strange language. The language of magic. Yes, that's what I said, and... 
but that won't help us. We can't either of us speak it. If only Raislin, we don't need Raislin. Tass interrupted. I can't speak it, but I can read it. You see, I have these glasses, glasses of true seeing. Raislin called them. They let me read languages, even the language of magic. I know because he said if he caught me reading any of his scrolls, he'd turn me into a cricket and swallow me whole. And you think you can read the orb? I can try. Tass hedged. But Lorana, Sturm said there probably wouldn't be any dragons. Why should we risk even bothering with the orb? Fizban said only the most powerful magic users dared use it. Listen to me, Tasselhoff Barfoot," Lorana said softly, kneeling down beside the Kender and staring him straight in the eye. If they bring even one dragon here, we're finished. That's why they gave us time to surrender instead of just storming the place. They're using the extra time to bring in dragons. We must take this chance. A dark path. And a light bath. Tasselhoff remembered Fizban's words, and hung his head. Death of those you love. But you have the courage. Slowly, Tass reached into the pocket of his fleecy vest, pulled out the glasses, and fit the wire frames over his pointed ears. Chapter Thirteen. The sun rises, darkness descends. The fog lifted with the coming of morning. The day dawned bright and clear, so clear that Sturm, walking the battlements, could see the snow-covered grasslands of his birthplace near Vingard Keep, lands now completely controlled by the dragon armies. The sun's first rays struck the flag of the knights. Kingfisher beneath a golden crown, holding a sword decorated with a rose in its claws. The golden emblem glittered in the morning light. Then Sturm heard the harsh, blaring horns. The dragon armies marched upon the tower at dawn. The young knights, the hundred or so that were left, stood silently on the battlements, watching as the vast army crawled across the land. With the inexorability of devouring insects. At first, Sturm had wondered about the knight's dying words. They ran before us. Why had the dragon army run? Then it became clear to him: the dragon men had used the knight's own vainglory against them in an ancient yet simple maneuver. Fall back before your enemy, not too fast. Just let the front lines show enough fear and terror to be believable. Let them seem to break in panic. Then let your enemy charge after you, overextending his lines, and let your armies close in, surround him, and cut him to shreds. It didn't need the sight of the bodies, barely visible in the distant, trampled, bloody snow, to tell Sturm. He had judged correctly. They lay where they had tried desperately to regroup for a final stand. Not that it mattered how they died. He wondered who would look on his body when it was all over. Flint peered out from a crack in the wall. 
At least I'll die on dry land. The dwarf muttered. Sturm smiled slightly, stroking his mustaches. His eyes went to the east. As he thought about dying, he looked upon the land where he'd been born, a home he had barely known, a father he barely remembered, a country that had driven his family into exile. He was about to give his life to defend that country. Why? Why didn't he just leave and go back to Palanthus? All of his life he had followed the code and the measure. The code, est sulorus, oth mythas. My honor is my life. The code was all he had left. The measure was gone. It had failed. Rigid, inflexible, the measure had encased the knights in steel heavier than their armor. The knights, isolated, fighting to survive, had clung to the measure in despair, not realizing that it was an anchor, weighing them down. Why was I different? Sturm wondered. But he knew the answer, even as he listened to the dwarf grumble. It was because of the dwarf, the kender, the mage, the half-elf. They had taught him to see the world through other eyes, slanted eyes, smaller eyes, even hourglass eyes. Knights like Derek saw the world in stark black and white. Sturm had seen the world in all its radiant colors, in all its bleak grayness. It's time, he said to Flint. The two descended from the high lookout point just as the first of the enemy's poison-tipped arrows arched over the walls. With shrieks and yells, the blaring of horns and clashing of shield and sword, the dragon armies struck the tower of the high clarist as the sun's brittle light filled the sky. By nightfall, the flag still flew, the tower stood, but half its defenders were dead. The living had no time during the day to shut the staring eyes or compose the contorted, agonized limbs. The living had all they could do to stay alive. Peace came at last with the night as the dragon armies withdrew to rest and wait for the morrow. Sturm paced the battlements, his body aching with weariness, yet every time he tried to rest, taut muscles twitched and danced. His brain seemed on fire. And so he was driven to pace again, back, and forth, back and forth with slow, measured tread. He could not know that his steady pace drove the day's horrors from the thoughts of the young knights who listened. Knights in the courtyard, laying out the bodies of friends and comrades, thinking that tomorrow someone might be doing this for them, heard Sturm's steady pacing, and felt their fears for tomorrow eased. The ringing sound of the knight's footfalls brought comfort to everyone, in fact, except to the knight himself. Sturm's thoughts were dark and tormented, thoughts of defeat, thoughts of dying ignobly, without honor, tortured memories of the dream, seeing his body hacked and mutilated by the foul creatures camped beyond. Would the dream come true, he wondered, shivering. Would he falter at the end, unable to conquer fear? Would the code fail him, as had the measure? Step, 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 step. Stop this. 
Sturm told himself angrily. You'll soon be mad as poor Derek. Spinning abruptly on his heel to break his stride, the knight turned to find Lorana behind him. His eyes met hers, and the black thoughts were brightened by her light. As long as such peace and beauty as hers existed in this world, there was hope. He smiled at her, and she smiled back, a strained smile. But it erased lines of fatigue and worry in her face. Rest, he told her. You look exhausted. I tried to sleep, she murmured. But I had terrible dreams. Hands encased in crystal, huge dragons flying through stone hallways. She shook her head, then sat down, exhausted, in a corner, sheltered from the chill wind. Sturm's gaze moved to Tasselhoff, who lay beside her. The kender was fast asleep, curled into a ball. Sturm looked at him with a smile. Nothing bothered Tass. The Kendard had a truly glorious day, one that would live in his memory forever. I've never been at a siege before, Sturm had heard Tass confide to Flint, just seconds before the dwarf's battle-axe swept off a goblin's head. You know we're all going to die, Flint growled, wiping black blood from his axe-blade. That's what you said when we faced that black dragon in Zaktsaroth, Tass replied. Then you said the same thing in Torbarden, and then there was the boat... This time we're going to die, Flint roared in rage, if I have to kill you myself. But they hadn't died, at least not today. There's always tomorrow, Sturm thought, his gaze resting on the dwarf who leaned against a stone wall, carving at a block of wood. Flint looked up. When will it start? he asked. Sturm sighed, his gaze shifting out to the eastern sky. Dawn, he replied. A few hours yet. The dwarf nodded. Can we hold? His voice was matter-of-fact, the hand that held the wood firm and steady. We must, Sturm replied. The messenger will reach Palantas tonight. If they act at once, it's still a two-day march to reach us. We must give them two days. If they act at once, Flint grunted. I know, Sturm said softly, sighing. You should leave. He turned to Lorana, who came out of her reverie with a start. Go to Palanthus. Convince them of the danger. Your messenger must do that, Lorana said tiredly. If not, no words of mine will sway them. Lorana, he began, do you need me? She asked abruptly. Am I of use here? You know you are, Sturm answered. He had marveled at the elf-maid's unflagging strength, her courage, and her skill with the bow. Then I'm staying, Lorana said simply. Drawing the blanket up more closely around her, she closed her eyes. I can't sleep, she whispered. But within a few moments her breathing became soft and regular as the slumbering kenders. Sturm shook his head, swallowing a choking thickness in his throat. His glance met Flint's. The dwarf sighed and went back to his carving. 
Neither spoke, both men thinking the same thing. Their deaths would be bad if the Draconians overran the tower. Lorana's death would be a thing of nightmares. The eastern sky was brightening, foretelling the sun's approach. When the knights were roused from their fitful slumber by the blaring of horns, hastily they rose, grabbed their weapons, and stood to the walls, peering out across the dark land. The campfires of the dragon armies burned low, allowed to go out as daylight neared. They could hear the sounds of life returning to the horrible body. The knights gripped their weapons, waiting. Then they turned to each other. Bewildered. The dragon armies were retreating. Although only dimly seen in the faint half-light, it was obvious that the black tide was slowly withdrawing. Sturm watched, puzzled. The armies moved back just over the horizon, but they were still out there, Sturm knew. He sensed them. Some of the younger knights began to cheer. Keep quiet! Sturm commanded harshly. Their shouts grated on his raw nerves. Lorana came to stand beside him and glanced at him in astonishment. His face was gray and haggard in the flickering torchlight. His gloved fists, resting atop the battlements, clenched and unclenched nervously, his eyes narrowed as he leaned forward, staring eastward. Lorana, sensing the rising fear within him, felt her own body grow chill. She remembered what she had told Tass. Is it what we feared? she asked, her hand on his arm. Pray we are wrong, he spoke softly, in a broken voice. Minutes passed. Nothing happened. Flint came to join them, clambering up on a huge slab of broken stone to see over the edge of the wall. Tass woke, yawning. When's breakfast? The Kender inquired cheerfully, but no one paid any attention to him. Still they watched and waited. Now all the knights, each of them feeling the same rising fear, lined the walls, staring eastward without any clear idea why. What is it? Tass whispered. Climbing up to stand beside Flint, he saw the small red sliver of sun burning on the horizon, its orange fire turning the night sky purple, dimming the stars. What are we looking at? Tass whispered, nudging Flint. Nothing, Flint grumbled. Then why are we looking? The Kender caught his breath with a sharp gulp. Sturm? He quavered. What is it? The knight demanded, turning in alarm. Tass kept staring. The rest followed his gaze, but their eyes were no match for the Kenders. Dragons, Tasselhoff replied. Blue dragons. I thought as much, Sturm said softly. The dragon fear. That's why they pulled the armies back. The humans fighting among them could not withstand it. How many dragons? Three, answered Lorana. I can see them now. Three. Sturm repeated, his voice empty, expressionless. Listen, Sturm. Lorana dragged him back away from the wall. I, we, weren't going to say anything, 
It might not have mattered, but it does now. Tasselhoff and I know how to use the dragon orb. Dragon orb? Sturm muttered, not really listening. The orb here, Sturm. Lorana persisted, her hands clutching him eagerly. The one below the tower, in the very center. Tass showed it to me. Three long, wide hallways lead to it, and, and. Her voice died. Suddenly, she saw vividly, as her subconscious had seen during the night, dragons flying down stone halls. Sturm! She shouted, shaking him in her excitement. I know how the orb works. I know how to kill the dragons. Now, if we just had the time. Sturm caught hold of her, his strong hands grasping her by the shoulders. In all the months he had known her, he could not recall seeing her more beautiful. Her face, pale with weariness, was alight with excitement. Tell me quickly, he ordered. Lorana explained. Her words falling over themselves as she painted the picture for him, that became clearer to her as she talked. Flint and Tass watched from behind Sturm. The dwarf's face aghast. The Kender's face filled with consternation. Who will use the orb? Sturm asked slowly. I will. Lorana replied. But Lorana, Tasselhoff cried. Fizban said. Tass, shut up. Lorana said through clenched teeth. Please, Sturm, she urged. It's our only hope. We have the dragon lances and the dragon orb. The knight looked at her, then toward the dragons speeding out of the ever brightening east. Very well, he said finally. Flint, you and Tass go down and gather the men together in the center courtyard. Hurry. Tasselhoff, giving Lorana a last troubled glance. Jumped down from the rock where he and the dwarf had been standing. Flint came after him more slowly, his face somber and thoughtful. Reaching the ground, he walked up to Sturm. Must you? Flint asked Sturm silently as their eyes met. Sturm nodded once. Glancing at Lorana, he smiled sadly. I'll tell her, he said softly. Take care of the kinder. Goodbye, my friend. Flint swallowed, shaking his old head. Then, his face a mask of sorrow, the dwarf brushed his gnarled hand across his eyes and gave Tass a shove in the back. Get moving! The dwarf snapped. Tass turned to look at him in astonishment, then shrugged and ran, skipping along the top of the battlements, his shrill voice shouting out to the startled knights. Lorana's face glowed. You come too, Sturm," she said, tugging at him like a child eager to show a parent a new toy. "I'll explain this to the men if you want. Then you can give the orders and arrange the battle disposition." "You're in command, Lorana," Sturm said. "What?" Lorana stopped, fear replacing the hope in her heart. So suddenly, the pain made her gasp. "You said you needed time." Sturm said, adjusting his sword belt, avoiding her eyes. "You're right. You must get the men in position. You must have time to use the orb. I will gain you that time." He picked up a bow and a quiver of arrows. "No, Sturm," Lorana shivered with terror. "You can't mean this. I can't command. I need you, Sturm. Don't do this to yourself." 
Her voice died to a whisper. Don't do this to me. You can command, Lorana, Sturm said, taking her head in his hands. Leaning forward, he kissed her gently. Farewell, elf maid, he said softly. Your light will shine in this world. It is time for mine to darken. Don't grieve, dear one. Don't cry. He held her close. The forest master said to us in darkened wood that we should not mourn those who have fulfilled their destiny. Mine is fulfilled. Now hurry, Lorana. You'll need every second. At least take the dragon nonce with you, she begged. Sturm shook his head, his hand on the antique sword of his father. I don't know how to use it. Goodbye, Lorana. Tell Tannis. He stopped, then sighed. No, he said with a slight smile. He will know what was in my heart. Sturm! Lorana's tears choked her into silence. She could only stare at him in mute appeal. Go, he said. Stumbling blindly, Lorana turned around and somehow made her way down the stairs to the courtyard below. Here she felt a strong hand grasp hers. Flint, she began, sobbing painfully. He... Sturm... I know, Lorana, the dwarf replied. I saw it in his face. I think I've seen it there for as long as I can remember. It's up to you now. You can't fail him. Lorana drew a deep breath, then wiped her eyes with her hands, cleaning her tear-streaked face as best she could. Taking another breath, she lifted her head. There, she said, keeping her voice firm and steady. I'm ready. Where's Tass? Here, said a small voice. Go on down. You read the words in the orb once before, read them again. Make absolutely certain you've got it right. Yes, Lorana. Tass gulped and ran off. The knights are assembled, Flint said, waiting your command. Waiting my command, Lorana repeated absently. Hesitating, she looked up. The red rays of the sun flashed on Sturm's bright armor as the knight climbed the narrow stairs that led to a high wall near the central tower. Sighing, she lowered her gaze to the courtyard where the knights waited. Lorana drew another deep breath, then walked toward them, the red crest fluttering from her helmet, her golden hair flaming in the morning light.